welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Tonight is our last night of the series that's been going for 22 years. Well, at least 22 parts as we have sought to go through the book of Acts. Acts is a book in the Bible in the New Testament. And it's 28 chapters long. There's a whole heap of words, sentences, verses, chapters in the book of Acts. And it's taken a little while to get through it. But to be honest, had we gone upon or gone through this book line upon line verse upon verse, we would be here literally for 22 years. And so instead of approach it that way, we thought we would do what we call it an overview and that we'd grab and look at the major themes of the book of Acts and talk into them and hopefully inspire you to fall in love with the Word of God, go home, read it for yourself, read all the bits that we left out and get messages for yourself, fall in love with God, fall in love with His Word, but more importantly, that it would equal activation on your part. It's called the book of Acts for a reason. And it wasn't because the people in the book of Acts sat around just listening to messages. It's called Acts because it was the church in action. And so not only have we trusted that you fall in love with the Word of God, But my desire through this series is that it prompts us to action. Everyone say action. Action. And so I hope that has been the case so far. We've covered many topics through this series and hopefully we've learned much about Christ and his church. We've had many great lessons and they've been both practical and spiritual. And tonight is the last part of the series that I've already mentioned And I thought to myself, what better way to conclude this series with a message entitled, Finishing Strong. Finishing Strong. Because one of the standout features of Peter, who's a main player in the book of Acts, and Paul, who's also a main player in the book of Acts, and many of the early church disciples, the standout feature... And quality of these guys and girls is that no matter what they went through, no matter what they faced, they never gave up. They never gave in. You don't read of them having extended sabbaticals. No, they stayed their course. And they endured till the end and they finished well. Anyone can start anything. I shared this morning that We could all get in some running shoes and a nice little outfit sponsored by Adidas or Nike and we could line up and start a marathon. Every one of us, without any training whatsoever, all of us right now, we could do that. In actual fact, we wouldn't even need the nice gear from Nike or Adidas. We could just line up right now because starting doesn't take much. But when you get to one kilometre, two kilometre, Three kilometre, four kilometre. Pretty soon, one by one, we'd be dropping out. And what we'd find is very few would finish. Anyone can start anything. But it takes guts, determination. It takes wisdom to finish well. And as much as I love meetings like tonight, and as much as I love going, and as much as I love seeing Norm struggling away, as much as I love all that, In my heart of hearts, as a church, we want to see people equipped in life so that they might finish strong and finish well. Not just start, but that you'd be here this time next year. And you'd be here in a decade time. And and you'd be around and you'd be counting for God. Because that's what we read of in the book of Acts. These men and women, they endured long. They put up with much and they never gave in. The last two chapters of the book of Acts is no exception. We see Paul, who as I've already mentioned, is the main player of the second half of the book of Acts. And Paul finds himself under arrest. And because he's appealed to Caesar, he has to go to Rome. 
And back in the day, 2,000 years ago, they couldn't just get on an aeroplane. And so they had to set sail. And so Paul is under arrest. He's on his way to Rome to appeal his case to Caesar. And he's not the only guy on the ship. There's 275 others with him. And as the ship goes on its merry way, they find themselves not just in a storm, but in the perfect storm. They find themselves in this storm that is so brutal and it goes on for a couple of weeks. Eventually, the ship that he's on is wrecked. And because the, prayer, the soldiers didn't want the prisoners to escape, of which Paul was one, they decided to kill the prisoners. But because Paul had found favour with one of the officers, the officer stood up for all the prisoners because he didn't want to see Paul hurt. That's the favour of God in the midst of your storm. Paul survives yet another attempt on his life. He survives and they manage to swim to an island. And the island is called Malta. And so here's Paul, he's under arrest. He's just survived another assassination attempt on his life. He's survived the perfect storm. They managed to get a bit of wood from the broken ship and, and swim to safety. And all of them get to this island, Malta, alive and well. But they're cold, they're wet, and they're hungry. And so Paul, being the servant that he is, goes off with the rest of them and they collect firewood. And you think things are starting to look up. And here's Paul with all this wood. He's carrying the wood. And as he throws it onto the fire, the heat of the fire draws out the snake that was in the wood that Paul was carrying. Talk about a bad day. And this snake bites Paul. And the islanders, or as I like to call them, the Maltesers, <laughs> saw what had happened to Paul and cast judgment on him, saying, Aha, this man must be guilty, because although he survived the storm, God has not allowed him to live. And so he's guilty. But Paul just shook the snake off and carried on his, many, his merry way. And the Bible says that after a while or a long time, and they saw that Paul was suffering no ill effects, they changed their mind. And instead of saying he was guilty, instead of saying he was possessed by the devil... They changed their mind and said, he must be a God because he hasn't died. And they wanted to worship him. That's how fickle people are. Because people are great at making judgments with their eyes and getting no context to what they see. And so they see this man who survived a shipwreck. He survived the perfect storm, but he gets bitten by a snake. So he must be guilty. Bad boy. He doesn't die. Oh, you must be God. Worship. Such is the fickle nature of humanity at times. And then it goes on in Acts 28, the last chapter of the book of Acts, where Paul, who's kept under house arrest, arrives in Rome. And the story ends something like this, to be continued. And really, the book of Acts is being written 2,000 years later. This was just the start of what the church was getting involved in. And so here's Paul, endured much, and yet he never gave up. So the question has to be asked, if you're a thinker like I am, it's not enough just to know that he finished well. We've got to become a little bit more inquisitive than that. And if you want to get the most out of your Bible, I would say this to you, read it, <laughs> read it, and ask questions of it. And so when I ask the question, what stopped Paul giving up? What enabled him to finish strong? There are numbers of things that come to mind. We don't have time to go into all of those things. 
But what stands out to me in this story, particularly in Acts chapter 27, are three foundational things that held Paul in good stead when he faced the storm. And I'd love to tell you that if you give your life to Jesus and become a Christian, you'll never face another storm. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But how many of you as Christians tonight can say that's just not true? In actual fact, how many of you would say, in actual fact, I've faced more storms. I know Norm's going through a storm right now. I know Pete and Sally are going through a storm right now with some of the health of their kids. I know many of you are going through storms of life right now. And so here's Paul facing a storm, but I see three incredible foundations that hold him and ensure that he finishes well. Do you want to know what they are? I've already said there are many other things, but these are the foundations. And if you want to build something good, strong and lasting, you have to get the foundation right. And once you've got the foundation, you build on top of that. But as a foundation, let me say, there are three things. And the first one is simply this. You've got to hold on to your first love. Hold on to your first love. In Acts chapter 27, verse 33, it says, Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last, get this, 14 days. This storm lasted 14 days. He said, you have been in constant suspense and gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all. He broke it and began to eat. Now I want you to get in the story. The best way to read a book is to get in the story. You need to get on the boat with Paul. And as I read this, I think of myself on the boat with Paul. There's been a storm for two weeks. There's been no stars, no sun and no moon. It's been darkness the whole time. They haven't eaten anything. The whole time you're hearing, they're rocking up and down on the boat. The whole time they're throwing up, they're sick. And in the midst of this, it doesn't say it settles down. It doesn't say it settled down. The sun came out and Paul said, let's give thanks. In the midst of the storm, when the wind is going crazy and the boat's rocking up and down and everyone's fearful of their life, Paul, he says, Father, I thank you. I thank you, Father. You've been good to us. Let's eat and drink and give God thanks. In other words, the first thing Paul thinks to do is not swim to safety. It's not to protect his own life. The first thing he thinks of is God himself. You've got to catch this. In the midst of the storm, the first thing he thinks of is God. You see, your first love is seen in the first thing that you do. Whatever you do first is what you love and value most. Let's think of a more recent story where there was a captain on a ship. An Italian ship. More specifically, the Costa Concordia. Cruise liner ship comes across some tough times, finds itself the wrong way up. And what does the captain do? Who's he thinking of? Who's he putting first? Well, the reports tell us he just abandoned ship and put himself first. Now, can you imagine afterwards him saying, No, I'm a Christian. And I want you to know that I love God first. And I, love, and I put his people first. It doesn't matter what he says. It's what you do. See, I struggle when it comes to give of our tithes and our offerings. I love God, but we can't put him first in our giving. 
We pay our taxes first. We, we pay our bills first. We buy our kids' presents first. We buy everything we want first. And then somewhere, if there's anything left over, we put God in. That's not suggesting that God is our first love. And that's the beginning of the end. In the midst of the storm, Paul says, you know what? I bless you, God. I know it's tight economically right now. But this is a testing of our first love where we put our finance. When we don't feel like coming to church, it's a sign that this is our first love. See, love is not based on feelings alone. It won't last if it is. And that's the problem. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's nothing like first love. I remember as a 14-year-old seeing this young lady who was also 14 years of age. And I want to tell you, when I saw her, I had the fireworks. I, 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 I fell in love with her. I loved the two standout features were her eyes and her mouth. Kat's got the biggest mouth I know. <laughs> Seriously. And she's got the sweetest eyes. I'm an eye guy. I love eyes. And there was something about this girl among all the other girls that stood out. And it was her eyes and it was her mouth that drew me to her. But as I got to speak to her, I fell in love with her more. And you know, at that early age, age 14, I would think about her. All the time. I mean, I go to work and I think about her. And I couldn't wait till Saturday night because Saturday night was the one time that I could get to see her because we were so young. And the one time I got to see her was at roller skating. And again, I know it sounds gay, but it was cool back then. <laughs> you just need to imagine the coolest thing for you right now and it was like that, but cooler. Anyway, and I would skate backwards and look into her eyes. And on Tuesday night, mum and dad let me speak to her on the phone. And we would chew up at least two hours. And we didn't have phones without cords back then that you could just sit in your bedroom and talk. I had about a one metre radius that I could go. <laughs> You're like, hi. And it was, we only had one telephone in the house and it was right where the television was and the whole family were there. <laughs> and I'd have to tell Kath of my incredible love for her in front of the whole family. <laughs> and in the background, <laughs> And that sounds embarrassing, but my love was greater than that. I kept going. So I was like, anyways, go on. Does anyone know what that's like or remember what that is like? Maybe you've never experienced it. I, I hope and pray you do. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But as wonderful as that is, 28 years later, I can say, I still feel that way about her. See, it's wonderful to start. But the cool thing about what I'm telling you tonight is that I still feel that way. And even when Kath went to Melbourne recently, for two days, three days, two nights, I don't know how many times I rang her. I just ring her. How are you going? She says, well, the same as the last half an hour ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, I just wonder if you've done anything else since then. <laughs> and each morning we have the opportunity to get on the treadmill and the cross train and we just do 40 minutes of running and, and whatever and, and we get to talk. I, I just love being with her. And the key is I haven't lost that first love. And that's why for me, you know, Coming to church is not a chore because I've still got that first love. Yes. If you put church before your relationship with Christ, it's not going to last. Yeah. If you put your ministry before Christ, it's not going to last. Because Jesus didn't come that you might have a ministry. Yeah. He didn't come that you might have a church. 
routine. That's not the purpose. The purpose is that he wants a relationship with you. And if you lose that relationship with Christ, everything else loses meaning. Church loses its meaning. Ministry and service lose its meaning. And so when people start getting off rosters and when people start giving up on God and people don't stop going to church, it's the beginning of the end. And what it's really saying is that I'm losing my first love. We, 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 we never call it that. And we do, if we'd be doing ourselves a favour if we did. Because then we could get back on track. And sadly, we see so many people who fall out of love with one another. And I don't know who invented this saying, but I feel like smacking them in the head. I love her. I'm just not in love with her. What does that mean? What idiot came up with that saying? I love her. I'm not in love with her. Really? Do you know how stupid that sounds? I love her, but I'm not in love with her. What? Doesn't make sense. And we come up with all these little catch cries. Anything but look at ourselves. And it's much better just to ask ourselves what went wrong. And so when it comes to holding on to our first love, I think there's a couple of things you can do. There's others, but just for the sake of time, just practically, can I say this? I would encourage you to remember the early days. That's what the Bible tells us to do. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, remember those early days when you received the light, when you stood your ground in great contest, when you didn't back down, when you gladly gave up your properties because your love for Christ was far greater than anything you owned. Remember those days. The writer of Hebrews says, remember the early days. To get your first love back, you've got to remember the early days. And I think that one of the reasons I, I still love my wife as much as I do is I, I remember those early days. I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I've never lost that puppy love, that wonderment of when we first met. And we shouldn't. You've got to cultivate that. And I'm not saying every day we do this, but you know, often enough we talk about those early days, the days at skating when we first met. We talk about those early days in church and some of the crazy things we did and some of the silly songs we sang and some of the silly dance movements that we did. In, a, in 20 years' time, we're going to say, remember we used to do this? <laughs> remember when Tony made us go? <laughs> remember that. Remember this day. It will become an embarrassment to you. Remember it. So remember the early days. And secondly, do the things you did at first. Do the things you did at first. In Revelation 2, verse 4, it says, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. It's really simple. If you're falling out of love with someone, if you're struggling in your marriage, if you're struggling in your relationship with God and his church, remember the early days, firstly. And secondly, do the things you did at first. You know why many people's marriage end in divorce? Because they stopped doing what they did to get the girl in the first place. You think about when you fall in love with someone, you, you have a shower. You put on deodorant. You wear nice clothes. You watch what you say. You think about you give you give thought to your words. You buy flowers and chocolates. You date, you talk. When you stop doing all that. You're going to start saying, I love you, I'm just not in love with you. Which is code for, I no longer shower, I no longer put on deodorant, I no longer talk to my wife, I no longer buy her chocolates or flowers. And so it is in the church. When it comes to your relationship with God, I see people get so excited when they respond to God and they're at everything. And they're reading their Bible and they're praying and they're asking questions and they want to learn more. That's what you're meant to keep doing. I still read my Bible every day. And I still pray every day. And I still get to church regularly. That's what's going to keep your love alive. Doing those things you did at first.
And so if you're struggling in your marriage, take this on board. If you're struggling in your relationship with God and the church, don't be ashamed, embarrassed and say I'm not and cover up. Just call it what it is. Remember the early days and get back to doing what you used to do. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. We just want to see people get healthy and whole and finish well. Secondly, so that's the first thing. Hold on to your first love. Secondly, obey the last thing that God said. In Acts chapter 27, verse 23, Paul says, Last night an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me. And he said to me, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all those who sail with you. What you need to understand about this little scenario, this little account of Paul's life, is that three years prior to getting on this ship, Paul received a word from God. Rome. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't miraculous. It was just something that he heard and felt from God. Rome. And he lived with this one word for three years. And we do not read of Paul receiving another word from God in that time. If you know somebody who's hearing God all the time, Run. Get away from them fast. Because God doesn't tell you to do something, they tell you to do something different tomorrow when you haven't done the other thing. When God says do something, He won't speak again until you've done what He said to do. My kids know this. Kids, clean your room. I will not talk to my kids again until their room is clean. Can I play the guitar? Can I do this? Can I turn on the television? Can I? Have you done your room? God's like that. And my kids can interpret my silence as being grumpy, not caring. He doesn't love me, which is the immature response. But at least our kids are kids. It's sad when adults do that. Don't love me, don't talk to me. Just do what you were told. Told, told, told. <laughs> and so here's Paul with an angelic visitation. You would be forgiven for thinking God sent an angel to encourage Paul because he's having a really tough time. And you might think, oh, how wonderful. An angelic visitation in the midst of my hardship. Surely he's going to sprinkle me with gold dust. Surely he's going to lavish me with feathers. Surely he's going to bless me that I might roll over and, be, and tickle me or whatever the case may be. But this angel doesn't do any of that. This angel encourages him one thing, the word of God. Angel comes. Yes, angel. Rome. Paul, what don't you understand? R-O-M-E. Rome. You have got to go to Rome. I imagine that the angel was wearing a pair of Adidas Romes. I'm giving my age away. When God has spoken to you, it's kind of like Rome's everywhere. See, I believe God will speak to you after he's spoken to you. But it will be to confirm what he's already said. Do not let anything, not even angels, distract you from what God has called you to do. My wife, along with many others, went to Hillsong with me this year. And I love to go to conference and come away with one thing. And I encourage the people I go away with to find the one thing so that you can work on it. 
And I came away with my one thing and my wife came away with her one thing and she bought some books to help her in that area. And, and, and she started reading those books and that's awesome, it's wonderful. But I want you to know that if, if my wife woke me in the middle of the night and said, Tony, you never believe it. An angel visited me. You should have seen it. He did the Irish uh, dancing on the end of our bed. It was unbelievable. I would only want to know one thing. Did the angel say, read the books? Oh, he told me things, mysterious things, things I couldn't understand. Oh, it was so wonderful. And look, there's this residue of gold. It was amazing. It was wonderful. I still want to know one thing. Did he tell you to finish those books? (laughs) Many people get stuck because they never do what God is telling them to do. They do anything but. It's amazing some of the creativity that our kids have when I've asked them to do one thing. It's amazing what they will do except that one thing. How many have kids like that? Maybe those who didn't raise your hands, you can pray for us who have our hands raised. But it's amazing we fill our time with everything but what was asked of us. And so what's the last thing God said to you? Stop worrying and obey. I imagine when Paul got to the island of Malta, after enduring all that he endured, assassination plots, perfect storms, this, that and the other, beating, stonings and all the rest of it, when this snake had the audacity to come out of the wood and latch onto his arm, I imagine Paul's like, are you kidding me? What don't you know about what God said? I've got to go to Rome. Get off me. When God's given you a word, you can have a confidence. In actual fact, Paul was so full of God, I believe that in heaven there will be one born-again snake. (laughs) And so instead of the snake affecting Paul, Paul will affect the snake. Anyway, that's just putting it out there. The amazing thing about it all, Acts 28 is all about Paul in Rome. Because God said... And the third and final thing this evening is to live with eternity in mind. Acts 27 verse 20 says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, You should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Paul had actually said, don't go. This is the ultimate, I told you so. (laughs) Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because no one will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. It says here that after two weeks, they all gave up hope of being saved. They had no answers and no hope and they were gripped with the fear of death. But not Paul. How do you finish well? You've got to live for something bigger than what we see. Paul has hope. When everyone else had given up hope, Paul has hope. He has a hope in the future. He has a hope beyond the moment. See, Paul had settled something. In Philippians, a letter that he wrote to the church in Philippi, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living in the body... This will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to to depart and be with Christ. Paul knew that it was better for him to die because he would be with Christ in a place where there's no weeping and no suffering and no sin and no sickness and no poverty and no shame. Oh, that's better by far. But God has left me here for purpose. And so for your sakes, I'm going to stay.
And so because he had hope, he was able to bring hope. And because he was able to bring hope, he goes from being a prisoner to the captain of the ship. See, it doesn't matter if people have overlooked you. It doesn't matter if you don't have the title. Paul wasn't the captain by title. But in the midst of the storm, because of the hope he had, it's amazing who people will look to. In the storms of life, people don't look to titles. They look to hope. They look to those who have something more than just the temporal, something more than just the here and now. And there was something wonderful, mysterious about Paul. That when everyone else was panicking and everyone else was shutting down, something about the countenance of Paul shone. His peace was like nothing they'd seen before. And although he didn't have the title of captain, they were drawn to him like a magnet. See, in tough times, people aren't interested in your title. Parents, listen to me. Being a dad or a mum isn't enough by title. You've got to become a dad to your children. If you don't father your children, someone else will. Being their dad by birth is not enough. We've got to offer the younger generation hope. We can't get away with just do as you're told because I'm your father. That'll work when they're very young. But it won't work when they're older. And they'll be drawn to another who has what we're not providing. This captain was not able to provide what Paul was able to provide because he didn't have what Paul had. Paul had a power on the inside. Paul had a strength on the inside. He had a joy on the inside. He had a hope on the inside. And no title can give you that. And so when everyone else is panicking, Paul was at peace. And he stands up with all the audacity, the big-headedness, the confidence. And says, people, you should have listened to me. And no one was saying, who do you think you are? They just said, yeah, we should have. Because they were drawn to him. And he brings hope. Much like the hope that John Wesley received when he found himself in a situation much like Paul. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement. But prior to that, He had an incredible conversion. And part of his conversion was what took place on one particular day when he found himself in a shipwreck. And he noticed there were two groups on the boat. There were the Moravians and there were the English of which he was one. And in the midst of this storm, all the English were panicking. And John Wesley looked over to the Moravians and in the midst of the same storm on the same boat, a boat that was covered in water, the Moravians were singing to their God. And that messed with John Wesley's life forever. It changed his life. It wasn't preaching. It wasn't being told what to do. It was the example of believers in the midst of their storm living the reality because they live for another. They live with eternity in mind. They knew, these Moravians, that to die was to be with Christ. We have nothing to lose. We either get out of this and serve Jesus or we go to be with Jesus. Either way, we win. That's how we should live. With confidence. And it should be attractive. This notion that telling everybody you've got to cut your hair and you've got to stop smoking and you've got to stop doing this, it's not working and it never will because it was never designed to. What was so attractive about Jesus was the way He lived His life. What was so attractive about Paul? The way He lived His life. What was so attractive to John Wesley about the Moravians? The way they lived their life. If we just go to pieces when everyone else goes to pieces, what hope do people have? 
If we just put all our eggs into this life, all our dreams and hopes into this life, what hope can we bring? We're not meant to be like the world where we chase this and chase that and get ourselves into so much debt that we have to keep working and we can't get to church and we're frustrated and we're exhausted like everybody else. We're meant to leave some margin. We're meant to leave some space. We're meant to leave some room for God. That's the way God has designed us to live this life. And it's in this moment we can bring hope. See, future hope brings perspective even on the darkest days. You know, as I look through these three things, after I prepared my message, I thought, I know the answer now. The answer to what, you ask? The answer to my dad's question. He gets asked all the time, how do you stay married for 50 odd years in a loveless marriage? Here's the answer. These three things I've seen my dad do consistently the whole time I've been of an age that I can comprehend anything. I've seen a man who's dedicated the first part of his day to God every day that I can remember. He's kept his first love alive. I've seen him obey that last thing that God said. For years, Dad held on to this one word, wait. I remember as a teenager, I don't know what's going on, Tony, but God told me one thing, wait. I got so sick of hearing that. It drove me crazy, but it put something in me. This is consistency. I don't know, Tony, I don't know what's going on, but God's told me to wait. I don't know what's going on. I don't get it. I'm not sure, but God told me to wait. No angelic visitation, no visiting speaker, no attractive woman changed his mind or got him distracted. When other ladies saw that he was going through Christian ladies and they kind of made themselves available to him, wait! Dad's flesh and blood like you and I. He's got hormones rushing through his body. He's got anger management problems. It's not all right for dad. But it's all right for dad. But for these reasons, the foundation's in place. And he lives with eternity of mind. I remember because I worked with dad. I worked for dad for 12 years. And when you work with someone for 12 years, you get to see the good, the bad and the ugly. And I enjoyed the good. I enjoyed the bad and I ran from the ugly. But on the ugliest of days, and when dad was most frustrated, like we all get from time to time, he'd have a rant, he'd have a blurt, and it would usually last about five minutes, like almost time And what really ticked me off, because I was around, I copped Pete's telling off. I copped Baz's telling off. I caught mine, which was enough. I got told off enough just by, I, I, was, I kept myself busy just enough as well. But copping all theirs and then the frustration in the marriage and all that. I'd cop it all. And I'd just sit there listening. Like, okay. Remember, have you ever seen the Tasmanian devil? Every time I see that, I think that's dad. But then he'd stop. Take a big breath. He'd say, sorry about that cot. That's what he calls me, whatever. In light of eternity, what's it matter? He always found his perspective in light of eternity. And I'd see this peace, this perspective, this joy flood his heart again. See, some of you religious ones might say, well, he should never have got angry in the first place. Tell dad that, I dare you. I don't care if you're 20 years of age, he's 77. My money's on dad. Seriously. I see it in Paul's life. 
I see it in all the mighty men and women of God that have made a difference. These three things are all in play. You want to finish well? Yeah? Don't worry about angelic visitations. Don't wait for the next keynote speaker or youth camp. And they're all wonderful. They're all wonderful. There's a place for them all. But they do not take the place of this. You can have keynote speakers. You can have youth camps. You can have angelic visitation. But if you don't have this, you'll lose it all. Alternatively, you can have none of that other stuff. But if you've got this, you've got everything. You've got everything. If you can live with eternity in mind. I want to read a scripture that Matt read. Matt didn't know what I was sharing. So me and Matty, wherever he is, the guy who stood up here with the funky hat on. Two Corinthians chapter four, verse seven says, "For our light and momentary troubles." This is the same guy that we've been hearing about in Acts. He wrote this letter to the Corinthians. All that he's been through, he calls them light and momentary troubles. The perfect storm, light and momentary troubles. People trying to kill me, light and momentary troubles. We read that Paul got beaten with rods five times. Whack. Light and momentary troubles. On one occasion, people picked rocks up, threw them at him to kill him. In actual fact, the people that did that dragged him out of the city, thought he was dead. And maybe he was. But we read of the church getting around him. And after the church gathered, he got up. I don't know what that moment looked like. Whether he was dead and the church prayed, and God restored life into his dead body, I don't know. Or whether they just got round to encourage him. Say, come on, Paul, you can do this. Come on, mate, one more time. Either way, he got up and he went straight back into the same city where they threw the rocks at him. Light and momentary troubles. Can anyone beat that? Anybody? Anyone got any harder life than that? Light and momentary troubles. Achieving for us. See, he attached purpose. This is just achieving something for me. If I respond well to this now, it's achieving something. By not running away, by not giving up on God, by not giving up on the church, it's achieving something. It's achieving for us an eternal glory. Something beyond this life. And that far outweighs it all. So we fix our eyes, this being true, we fix our eyes, not on our problems, not on what we can see, not on temporary things, but, what on, what, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Here's the fact. Paul survived the storm and he got to Rome. But eventually he died. The last time I checked, the mortality rate is 100%. We all die. We can't escape death, but we can escape the fear of death. Paul died, but he never feared death. It's one of the biggest things that grip humanity is the fear of death. And that fear, the Bible says, can be taken away as we fix our eyes on Christ. It's the only way. Life will not get better if you just look around at people, problems, circumstances and situations. Life always gets better when you start looking up. That's the start. And it's through looking up and getting perspective that we can look back down and face our problems. We don't want to be like some Christians where you just keep our head in the clouds and say, it's not happening by faith, I'm not here. No, you've got to be able to look up and then look back down and face your problems. Paul looked up to God. He saw the angel. He got his perspective. And then he looks at the problem and brings purpose and perspective to it. 
And that came because he had an active, vitally alive relationship with the living God. And that's what Christianity is. Christianity is not a list of rules and regulations of what you can and cannot do. Christianity is not like any other religion on the planet. Contrary to popular belief, all roads do not lead to God. Every other religion contradicts Christianity. Only Christianity has its basis that God came to us. Every other religion out there is about us trying to get to God through doing good works, through being at peace, through meditation, through our doing. You'll never find God through your doing. And God knew that. That's why He sent His Son. He looked at planet Earth and said, these people will never be good enough. You see, when we messed up, the Bible calls that sin. And the penalty for our sin is death. Every one of us deserves to die. And that's why God the Father sent His Son, Christ, to live this earth and to show the world how God intended us to live. And Jesus Christ, unlike anyone else, never sinned. And as a sinless sacrifice, He went to the cross and died. He offered Himself as a death penalty, as a ransom for us who deserve to die. And the divine exchange that took place was His life for ours. And the Bible says that if we were to give our life to Christ, that He would give His life to us. And Christ's life is spotless. And Christ's life is perfect. And it's this perfection of Christ in us that gives us access to God. Nothing to do with what we have done, but everything to do with what Jesus has done. My confidence to stand before you tonight and say, I will stand before God face to face one day, not because of anything I've done, not because of the sermons I've preached, but because of the fact that I received Christ in my life is the only thing that gives me confidence to say that I will have my home in heaven with God for all time and eternity. No other religion has that on offer. It's all about your doing. The way I choose to live my life as a Christian has everything to do with a motivation of love. But not to earn favour with God. I can only get favour with God through one way and that's through His Son, Jesus. But because I don't want to be a stumbling block to the people that He's put in my sphere of influence, I choose to live a certain way. To help people. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen and God bless.